Welcome to the nine o'clock service. I'm glad that you're here. I need more space up here, so I'm, I'm going to knock one of these over if, uh, if I don't move those. My name is Tom. I work here, and I, uh, I am so happy. If we have not met, many of you are here for the first time today, and I'm glad you're here. And I uh, would really appreciate a chance to meet you personally. I met some of you before the service. I'd like to add my thank you to those of you who helped make yesterday happen. It was really a cool day. Um, so many people who had never been uh, to this campus before were picking up eggs. And if you don't know what happens, they pick up 12 eggs, they put them in their basket, and they go down to the cafe or the fellowship hall, and they sit at these tables, and there are professional storytellers who take those eggs, they open them up, they take all the parts out of the egg and put them in a book, and it tells the story of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection and the gift of eternal life through 12 eggs. It is cool. And honestly, a lot of people have never heard the story. There was one um, family that came, and they said, we're new to the United States, and we heard that Easter was a national holiday, so we came because we wanted to know what it was about. <laughs> and, okay, that is awesome. You are in the right spot because Easter changes everything. Um, do you want to, you know, the storyteller, I happen to know personally. <laughs> Good job, honey. <laughs> She said, you know, all, even counting date and time, A.D. and uh, B.C., that, that all happened here. The world changed on Easter. Everything is different because of Easter. So anyway, there were, all these families had this great exposure, and not only on our campus, but hundreds on the Erie campus and over in Thornton as well. So it's awesome. And now we get to open the eggs and see what the story's about. Easter is about the biggest contrast of before and after that there is. We get bombarded with advertisements all the time about if you do this, it'll be better after if you do. Um, think Botox. Um, you, you can get new teeth and they'll be better after. Or your weight loss, and every weight loss is like, this is what I was before, and this is what I am now. You need this product, and you buy it. But nothing compares to the before and after of Easter. Nothing. If Jesus Christ is alive, everything is different. But a lot of people miss it. And I want to trace the story of a person um, who missed it for his whole life until he met Jesus. You know him. We've actually been studying a little bit about him if you've been around here, but his name is James. The Bible tells us that Mary and Joseph, through a virgin conception, had a baby named Jesus. And then they had children afterwards and one of them was named James. Now you have to imagine what it might have been like to have Jesus as your older brother. That would have been hard, I, I just saying. I had two older brothers, and you know, the sibling rivalry would have been pretty intense. 
And Jesus was called into the ministry when he was about 30 years old, and he started moving around Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee and doing his ministry, and his siblings were not interested in what Jesus was doing. They actually thought that he was sort of crazy. And I want to trace a couple interactions of the brother of Jesus to him before Jesus died and rose again. The first one is in Mark chapter 3. I'll put it on the screen so that you can see it. In Mark chapter 3, the, night after, the day after Jesus had picked his 12 disciples, he went home and a crowd gathered around Jesus so that they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. These are the brothers of Jesus and the members of his family, they saw that he was picking these disciples and he was beginning to have a ministry and they want to bring the straitjacket to him and put him away and take him away and not embarrass the family name. That's the way the family thought about Jesus in the first interaction. Um, it is in this context that Jesus soon after in, these, in this chapter was looking about over people and um, some of the disciples said to him, hey, your mother, mother's here and your brothers are here. And he said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he made an interesting analysis. He said, the, the people who are closest to me, the insiders, they're actually outside. And the periphery, the outsiders, they're the insiders. This is my family. People who hear me and know me, and that's not my physical family. That's not my earthly family. Um, in another place, not on the screen, after he was teaching parables, Jesus came back into his hometown, and all the people were listening to him, and then the hometown idea about Jesus was this. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and not all the sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. So his closest family members and the friends back in Nazareth all think about him like he's gone bonkers. And one more interaction that comes in John chapter 7. Jesus went about Galilee, and he didn't want to go into the city of Jerusalem or Judea, and instead, his brother said to him, because he was sort of hiding out on the outside, not going into the city, and they said, why don't you leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you're doing? Because he'd been doing them out on the outside of the city. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things and show yourself to the world. It's a taunt. Why are you staying on the outside? Do you want to be... A Messiah? Go to Jerusalem. Let everybody see. For not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't want to believe in him. And the whole analysis is the family that's closest to Jesus is not believing in who he is in all of the times. He's doing his miracles. He's teaching his lessons. He's on the Sermon on the Mount. They know all about it, but they are not believing in him. 
In fact, if you go all the way to the cross, those of you who might remember when Jesus was on the cross dying, he's actually hanging on the cross, and one of his sayings on the cross is to a disciple named John, and he looks down at John, and he looks over at his mother Mary, and he says to John, John, behold, your mother. Behold, Mary, woman, your son. As if from the cross, in compassionate care for his mother, he says to John, who wrote the Gospel of John, I want you to take care of my mother. And mom, this will be as your firstborn son. Why? There's James. Why John? Because Jesus knew that James did not believe in him, and he wanted his mother to be cared for by somebody who believed. It's stunning. How many have family dysfunction? Okay, there's just a little tension in the Bible story of what's going on in, in this story. And Jesus was, was announcing the kingdom of God, and his younger brother James was not buying it. I don't think he was unaware in Jerusalem that Jesus was dying. But as the story unfolds, um, something changed. And the summary statement of the change is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to put a couple of these verses on the wall. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, verses 3 through 5, is a summary statement of the whole work of Jesus going to the cross. It's given to us by the Apostle Paul. And he said this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. This is Paul saying, here's the summary of the whole work of Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. We'll stop there. What changed for James is about to be seen here. It's the content of what Jesus actually did on the cross. This is the gospel statement. The good news of the Bible is that it is the most important thing so you say, what's, what's the most important before and after? What's the most important event in the world? I, I would say to you that no world event has greater consequence than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Essentially, that's what Paul's saying. This is the first most important thing. Here it is. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, and then he was buried as the scripture said, and then he rose again on the third day, just as the scriptures say. And if you want to get the nutshell of the message of the New Testament, it's this. Christ died for sinners. He was buried. He really died. And he was raised to new life. And he lives forever. And then he was recognized by people. He was recognized by Cephas. That's a name for Peter. Peter, who said, I don't know who he is. I, I don't know what curse he used. 
but it would be as if to say, damn it, I don't know that man. Don't be offended. Like, that's what happened. He cursed, I do not know him. Jesus appeared to him. Don't you love that? Peter needed somebody to go say, hey, I love you. You failed. You denied me. I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. And Peter went on to be the great leader of the church, an author of the New Testament, because Jesus appeared to him. But there's more. Appeared to the twelve, and the next verses tell us, and then he appeared to more than 500 people, brothers at one time. Must have been in a gathering together where Jesus showed up and he appeared to all of them together. And most of them are still alive. So at the time of this writing of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is saying, hey, you could check them out. They're, they're here in Corinth. You, you can ask them. Oh, some have fallen asleep. Some have died. And everybody read verse 7. Then he appeared to, ah, he appeared to James. Can we just take a minute of sanctified imagination and think of that conversation. James, who said, oh, why don't you go show your stuff to Jerusalem? You know, nobody who wants to be the Messiah hangs out in the outskirts. Go. James, who did not believe, somehow Jesus met with him. I think in a way that Jesus would want to meet with you this morning and actually say to you, I'm alive. James, after rejecting him, forsaking him, Jesus came and met him face to face. I imagine the conversation going like this. You really are the Messiah. I am so, so sorry. All those years, I watched you. I was jealous. I ignored you. I loathed you. When I was 12, I stole your hammer. <laughs> I know he... I know you did. <laughs> I know you did. But I see Jesus just wrapping up James and saying, I love you. You rejected me all these years, but I love you. He appeared to James. Is that not awesome? And he appeared to James in order to confirm to him that he really is who he says he is, that he really accomplished on the cross what he came to accomplish. And he transformed James's life so radically so that James, the former rejecter of Jesus, goes on to become called by the apostles one of the apostles. J James goes on to be a leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the author of a book in the New Testament called by his name, James. 
that book opens up with him giving his own title. I am the author of this book. My name is James. We would say, I'm Jesus' brother. He doesn't. James begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am. I'm not his younger brother. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is James who goes on uh, to gain the nickname James the Just because everybody thought he was He was a righteous person. He was well-versed in the Old Testament, but Christ so changed his life that he got a nickname, James the Just. Josephus says that he was known for his knees being as hard as camel's knees because he prayed so much. James is the one who was eventually charged, according to Josephus, by the priests for leading people away from Judaism, and he was brought up to the temple mount, and he was pushed off to his death, but it didn't kill him, and so they either stoned him or clubbed him to death, and James, the brother of Jesus, died a martyr's death. Okay, before I knew who you were, Jesus, I loathed you, or I at least ignored you, and then I found out who you are, and my whole life has changed. I, I, I teach people about you. And James went on to be a leader in the early church, and people looked to him, and he was incredibly instrumental because he really found out who Jesus was because Christ came to him. Now, you might say, well, I would do that too if Jesus came and met with me face to face. I wonder, would you? Here's what we do know. We, we have the witness of the Bible speaking to us right now that the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. There has never been another satisfactory story to replace the fact that the stone was rolled away, that the body was removed, gone, risen. The tomb is an empty tomb. More than five hundred witnesses saw Jesus. And their witnesses, interestingly enough, were first by women. And the Bible includes that, which would have been unheard of in the day that women would be the most reliable. In the culture, that wasn't true. But Jesus, in his compassion, comes right to the women and says, go tell the disciples. Now, honestly, let's be fair about everybody in the story. Not everybody was thinking that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Even the women were coming to the tomb with embalming materials because they were going to prepare the body because he was, in fact, dead. But he comes to them and says, go tell the disciples, and they drop the embalming materials on the ground, and they go tell the disciples, and they knock on the door, and the disciples, he's alive, we saw him. And what do they say? Nonsense. No way. And they won't even believe the witness of the women because it's so impossible. And yet then they run to the tomb and they find it empty. And then they go. And as they're going, Jesus appears to them and says, tell my brothers I'm alive. And it's starting to build. And the witnesses are more and more seeing this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised up, and he is alive. That's a witness. And think about all these 
followers who became the most instrumental people who were willing to go all the way to their death, all the apostles, you know, they were like chickens on Friday night. And then they saw him. And when they saw him, they became so bold that they laid down their life and they were sawn in two, burned at the stake, stoned, killed, crucified upside down. Why? Because this is true. I stake my life on it. I don't know anything as surely as I know Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. What is the thing you are most certain of in your life? Just put above it. The most thing I'm certain about, you might say, is my, my baby's love. Yeah, that's good. He'll be three soon. Or 15. What are you most certain about in all of the world? Just put above that, Jesus Christ is alive. And if you need another proof, then just, why are we here? The church goes on. The church is alive. This message is from transform people to transform people to transform people. And the message of the gospel is going out today all over the world in places in known and unknown, where people are gathering together and say, I have come to know the risen Christ, and he has changed my life. Things are different because of it. That's what James knew. He absolutely knew that. And his life afterward verifies it. So let's just think for a moment about the promises that the resurrection makes to us. It makes some promises that, that there just are within the truth of the resurrection of Jesus um, many things that are now true. And one of them is that evil doesn't have the final word. What happened to Jesus was absolutely evil. It was unjust. But in a sense, God was in it. And all of us today, wouldn't we say there's so much wrong in the world today? We're troubled by what's happening in war disease, crime, murder, deceit, embezzlement. Think of all the, the evil that goes on. How about deceit? Where do you find truth? And if you speak truth, you get canceled. You know, the world is in trouble. And everywhere, greater and greater evil. But Jesus died for sinners, and his death is the assurance that evil will not ultimately have the final word. The sting of death is sin. And death, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As bad as things are, Jesus died for it all, and he died for us. And one day he's going to make it all right. Today the call is, what will you do with your own sinfulness? How will we respond as sinners to the one who gave himself for us? The second promise of the resurrection is in this, that our past failures don't need to define the future. I think about James, that for all these years he had been around Jesus, listening to Jesus, and yet he said, no, no, no. In fact, just think for a minute. Remember Thomas? Thomas said, I will not believe in Jesus unless he shows me. And so what did Jesus do? 
He showed him. Thomas, put your finger here. Touch the holes in my hand. Jesus compassionately helped Thomas's doubt. We already talked about Peter's denial, and Jesus met with him and said, I, I love you. I forgive you. And James was antagonistic, and Jesus met with him. What's your deal with Jesus? Are you doubting? Are you denying? Are you antagonistic to him? Are you just putting him off? I think he would meet with you today and say to your heart, I'm alive. Oh, Jesus, you don't know what I've done. No, I, actually, I do. And I love you anyway. I don't think you could. No, I, I can't. And it's why I went to the cross. I love you so much that I gave my life for you. You say, I, you don't know the level of my failure. I don't. You don't have to tell me. I know the level of mine. And I know that Jesus loves me. Not because of me. In spite of me, he loves me. Paul put it this way. Um, I count everything in my past as a loss in view of the surpassing knowledge, greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and what came before I don't really think about anymore. Either the good things or my failures. What I know now is that Christ died for me and I want to know him and the power of his resurrection in my life. And I would like you to think along those lines too, that I want to know Jesus and the power of his life. Because what you did in the past doesn't need to determine necessarily the future. All of our things in the past have some consequences that come forward, but as it comes to our relationship to God, our past sins and failures, he forgives. How much? All. How deep? Deep. Full cleansing. Total. It's like a before and after. And the after of coming to know Jesus is a new future. And the last promise of the resurrection is this, that death is overcome by eternal life. Death is overcome. We have experienced a lot of death in the last two years, haven't we? It's been on the news. It's been in COVID. It's now in war. The thousands of people who are dying but death is not the final word for those who are in Christ. I, I love this quote, and I have told it a number of times over the years, but Leo Tolstoy, in his book, A Confession, says this. My question was the simplest of questions lying at the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. Here it is. What will come of what I am doing today and tomorrow? 
Why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That is the existential question that every one of us must at some time ask. What is my life for? And if it doesn't include that there is a living Savior who died to forgive the failures of my life and give to me hope for today and eternal hope in his presence, it's meaningless. That's what he's saying. And in a sense, he's absolutely right, isn't he? He's right. And this is the reason that Jesus entered our world. It's the reason he went to the cross is because he was going to change everything that came before to everything that's coming after. And among them is death. For the one who's in Christ can give way to eternal life. Here's how the Bible puts it in other places. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. The only way you die, and there's good news on, in death, is if Christ is your Savior and you're ushered into heaven. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And then he said, do you believe this? I think if he were standing here today instead of me, which we all wish he were, he would ask you the same question. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, even if she dies, yet shall we live, yet shall she live. Do you believe it? And it really comes down to this then. I think the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of the world simply demands a response from us. What do you think about what Jesus did? There's a couple of things we learned from James as we've traced his life. The first is this. There's no nepotism in the Bible. It doesn't matter if your older brother is a Christian. It doesn't matter if your mother is a Christian. It doesn't matter if your grandmother is a Christian. There are no grandchildren in heaven. There are only children. In other words, you don't get in on anyone else's relationship. James was in the family, but he was an outsider. And people who weren't in his family, on the periphery of his life, he said, oh, these are my, these are my people. Why? They know who I am. James, you don't know who I am. And then James, here I am. I'm alive. I know who you are, and his whole life has changed. But up to that point, he'd been putting him off. The question is, do you know who Jesus is? One more thing. James, try to imagine the countless exposures James had to Jesus. It's frightening. Now just think for a moment, how many exposures have we had to Jesus? And God keeps saying, Believe in me. 
I gave my son for you. Another exposure. It's another Easter. <laughs> have any of you heard this story before? Okay, all of, most all of us in the room have heard this story before a hundred times. Or at least 25 Easter's. And another exposure. And I just want to say, maybe it's time not to be like James, but to just say, I see who you are. And if you do, here's the scripture that should guide you. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and you believe in your heart that God, everybody, raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes. It's not words that you speak. It's like faith, Lord, I believe. And with the mouth, we confess. You are who you say you are. I believe it in my heart, and I receive you. Now that would be your best before and after story. But you have to have a story. Something has to change for me in order for me to know this. And I, I pray you'll hear what he's saying to you. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came into this world to love the most antagonistic of us. You came to reach those of us who are jaded, skeptical, doubters, and you're just waiting after repeated exposures saying, here I am, I'm alive, I am not dead, I have paid it all. Come unto me, you who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest in your soul. I will give you forgiveness and cleansing. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And I just want to ask, if you're, you're here hearing this hopeful word, that even though you've been saying no, 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 you're hearing Jesus say to you today, believe me, believe me. Would you just, where you are, say to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I have a hard time imagining that you're alive, but I believe you are alive. And I ask you to be my Savior, to forgive me of my sins, and to give me a new after. A new life on the other side of trusting you. Lord, I pray you'll give faith to every person who right now is wrestling with whether to trust in Jesus. 
Would you just compel their hearts by the Holy Spirit to believe in the living Jesus Christ and give us all the certainty of the one thing we can know better than anything else in all the world, that you are alive, Lord Jesus, and we worship you as our risen Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.